All right, now with that, I want to draw your attention to our ongoing series on the book of Esther. We're at Esther chapter 7. There are 10 chapters in all, so we're over halfway. And we come back to the story after a couple of week pause, and we are going to be looking at someone who is at the very center of this book, which, as you can imagine, it might be Esther because her name is mentioned here. It is called the book of Esther. And we are going to see just this one thing. I I spent a lot of time just kind of giving us some background on this, but I'll just leave it at this and we'll fill this out as the sermon goes on. Esther in God's providential control and orchestration is at the very center of this chapter now where God is going to use Esther not only to expose a man named Haman, for all his wickedness, and as we're going to see, Haman is going to meet his demise this morning, but we're also going to see how Esther is in the process of God using her to deliver her people, the Jewish people, God's people, the apple of his eye from annihilation. All right, Esther chapter 7. What I'd like to do is, uh, if you have a Bible or device, why don't you take a look at Esther chapter 6, actually, the last verse, verse 14, and then we'll read verse 7, which is one of the shorter chapters in this book. All right, here's the context. While they were yet talking with him, that is, Haman's wife and friends, while they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, you remember that Esther um, had planned a feast for Haman and the king, which she's going to use now to expose Haman. All right, now while they were uh, talking with him, that's what we read in verse 14, the, king, the eunuchs come and they have Haman come to the feast. So, the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It will be granted to you. And what is your request? Even half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For I have been sold, or for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not uh, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king... They covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows 
that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. Kids, the word abated means that the king was angry at one point, but then once he realized that Haman needed to die, he was okay with that and his, his anger abated. That means it just kind of gradually went away. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you remember that Mordecai was humiliated. Remember he had to uh, take Mordecai and assist him through the city of Susa where people gave him praises. And Haman was humiliated. And you remember that, that Haman got together with his wife and friends and they got rather prophetic with him. And they said to him, if you have a Bible, take a look at that if you would. Um, uh, verse 13, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. And I, the reason I say that's prophetic, because they were looking at the future and they were basically saying, you know, if Mordecai is of the special people known as the Jewish people, the apple of God's eye, if you are opposed to him, please understand that you too are opposed and you will not be able to stand before this man. And as we look at it, you will not be able to stand before his God. Because while God is not mentioned in the whole of the book of Esther, remember that I say that over and over again, this is going on. God's hand is orchestrating all things. And the interesting thing we see once again, and Esther is full of this, we find what I call, remember if you were here a couple weeks ago, I call them delicious ironies. We have the turning of the tables, the turning of events. So Mordecai the Jew, if you've been going through the series with us, begins down here and he ends up here. And Haman, who is up here, seemingly second in command to the king, comes all the way down to here. I mean, kids, when you, when, you, when you look at the life of Haman, and when you look at Haman throughout this book, you know what he's like? I don't know if you've ever done this at home, but it's like you set up like maybe 200 dominoes, right? You put one after another, and what do you do after a while? You push one, it goes, right? And that's the way it is with Haman. His life is going, and finally the last domino in Haman's life falls in this chapter. So with that having been said, just a little bit of a brief introduction. Let's go and take a look at the story. All right, we're in chapter 7. And we pick up on the story where we left off last time, where Esther invites the king and Haman now to the second feast that she has set up for them. So they both come to this feast. And bear in mind that this feast is, you know, it's not like, you know, being invited to somebody's house and it's a big deal or a summer barbecue and it can last two, three, four, five hours or what have you. This is a couple day affair. And on the second day of this feast, they're, they're kicking back and they are drinking wine. And as they're drinking wine, the king finally says to Esther, okay, Esther, now is the time. What is it that you want? What is your request? Because whatever it is, I will give it to you. In fact, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So the time is ripe for Esther now to come before the king and finally say, all right, this is my request. Because she has been holding off. Because remember, she's been stringing the king and Haman along. So, there are many times in the book of Esther we got this going on. We have a little bit of a drum. The drum beat stops here for a moment. We go, oh. 
what's going to happen now. What is Esther going to say? Look at verses 3 and 4. If I have found favor in your sight. Okay, here's the request. But there's a little intro to the request. If I've found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be completely annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, have uh, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So now she's bringing this request to the king. And bear in mind, she's saying to the king, listen, if it were just a matter of, and notice how she identifies with these people now who are be to be annihilated. This is the first time that she does this in the book. She says, if it, if it was just a matter of, of my people being enslaved, I would not come before you and simply ask them to be freed. I wouldn't do that. But the fact of the matter is that the, the, the situation here is much more serious. These are people who have not just been, who have not been sold into slavery as much as they have been sold into death, into being killed, into being completely annihilated. Now, I want you to understand something here. There, there are many occasions in this book and here also in this chapter where Esther is, um, she's in a very precarious situation and actually, and you don't get this when you look at verses three and four off the bat, but initially. But when you, when you begin to reflect on what's going on in her life, when, when you reflect on this request, you, you see that she's in a, a precarious, even dangerous situation. And the reason why I say it is this. First of all, remember that she's coming to the king with his request to, to, for her and her people to be freed from a, a certain annihilation. Because remember, Haman had set the plot to annihilate these, uh, to the Jewish people. And the king and Haman are very tight. It's not like the, the king gets this request and Esther is alluding now to Haman who has set this plot. The king says to himself, you know, as we're going to see, he doesn't say, well, you know what, Haman, Haman, we're not getting along together, and I really, I don't like him very much, so let's do away with him. The king and Haman are very tight, and what Esther is going to do is she's going to try to separate them and turn the king against Haman. But she doesn't know if this is actually going to work, because again, they're pretty tight as individuals. Secondly, what I want you to notice, here's the second danger, is that Esther here is linking herself to the people who are about to be exterminated. Now, it's interesting, she doesn't say the Jewish people as a whole are about to be exterminated and Haman's doing this. He's the one who set the plot for this and I'm actually identified with the Jewish people. She doesn't say that. She doesn't identify these certain people to be annihilated until the next chapter. We're going to see that next week in chapter 8. But she is linking herself to these people. Now, bear in mind, this is the first time that the king is is hearing this. It's like, because the king could be saying, well, what are you talking about? You're connected with these people to be annihilated. I thought you were part of our people, the people of the Persian Empire. And now you're telling me these are your people? What is that? What's up with that? Why didn't you tell me that before? What else are you hiding from me? You know, he could be turning against her. But here's another danger, the third danger, and perhaps the most serious danger. And that is, and I brought this out on a number of occasions um, when preaching through this book. 
at least two or three times, and I don't know if you remember this, but remember I said to the effect that there are a number of historians who have researched King Ahasuerus, and it's somewhat supported in this book that King Ahasuerus was um, a rather unstable individual. He had, he had high emotional highs and he had emotional lows, and you never really, as we would say today, you never know when he was going to or when, uh, when he was going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed. So you don't know what kind of emotional state he is at this point. He could be extremely kind, but he could also be extremely cruel and even deadly. Let me, let me give you just one historical example of that. Um, if you could put the, uh, the quote up there. All right, there we go. Look at that if you would. The Greek historian Herodotus describes Ahasuerus' response to the request of a man named Pythias that he might release the eldest of his five sons from the obligation of military service. Although Pythias had earlier entertained him hospitably and contributed generously toward the cost of his war with Greece, Ahasuerus was so angered by the request that he had Pythias' son cut into two pieces and made the army pass between them. That's the same king. And this is the same king that Esther is playing chess with right now. She makes a move. Now we're wondering what kind of move is the king going to make. What, let's move on the story. What's the response of the king? And once again, we get this. We get the, 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 the drum beat again. Because now the story is at its very height. What's going to be response? Is he going to turn against Esther or is he going to do something else? And what does the king say? The king says, who is this? And where is this individual who would plot such a thing? And what is Esther's response? And Esther said, and now it's called the great reveal, a foe and an enemy. This man you're so tight with, the wicked man Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Why was he terrified? Because I tell you what, he understands what's going on here, and he, he knows the writing on the wall. It's a death sentence for him. So we move on in the story, and what does the king do? He goes into the palace garden, goes out of the room into the palace garden, probably just to, to uh, relieve some of his anger and to think what is going on next. Meanwhile, Haman understands the darkness of the situation. So what does he do? He goes to Esther and he falls down before her on the queen's couch. And what does he do? He begs for his life. The king eventually, we don't know how much time has transpired, comes back from the palace garden. He comes in and he sees Esther, or he sees Haman before Esther's couch. Now, we have to understand something here, that this is, this is uh, really against palace protocol. If you are just a normal individual, no matter how high up, you never get into as close a proximity like that without being called out. And the king sees this. He sees this against palace protocol. And I want to suggest to you now, he is so angry that he's using this situation as an excuse to apply the matter of assault to Haman. What does he say? Well, he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house. Now remember, when the king says this, and when the king says something, this is very, very important. Because when the king speaks, you listen. 
And as soon as the king says this, these attendants put this hood over uh, uh, Haman's head. Things are extremely dark at this point. And after he does that, there's a eunuch named Harbona, and he basically says this. You know, this Haman built a 75-foot gallows for this Mordecai, O king, who is the very individual, this Mordecai, who revealed a plot at one point to assassinate you, O king, and the very one that you had to go throughout the streets of Susa and have people praise him, this very Mordecai was the one for whom this gallows had been built by Haman. And the king says, oh, and what you do is you take Haman, and what you do is you hang him on those gallows. That's precisely what we happened. That what happened, and what do we read? Then the wrath of the king abated. It gradually went away. Interesting, isn't it? The man who was so close to the king bites it in the end, and he loses his life on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. Again, um, what we call a, a turning of the tables. Turning of the tables. That's the basic story. So, what do we learn from the story? What's some takeaways from the story? You know, um, there are a number of themes that I could bring out at this point, themes that we have looked at throughout this series. For instance, uh, once again, we see the hand of God orchestrating all things. God is not mentioned in the book, again, not mentioned in chapter 7, but his fingers are everywhere, and God is moving in on Haman, bringing him ultimately to his demise. Secondly, related to this, I don't know how, it depends how familiar you are with the Bible, but do you remember it was Genesis chapter 12, where God enters into covenant, a bond of foreign, uh, uh, love and friendship with a man named Abraham, who is the spiritual father, not only of the Israelites, but you and me. The Bible says he is the father of all those who embrace Christ Jesus in faith. And when God covenanted with Abraham, he said to him at one point, he said, all those who bless you and your descendants, I will bless. And all those who curse you and your descendants, I will curse. We have just one example of that here in our story. Always remember this, that when, I'm, I'm assuming not if, but when at times you are mocked for your faith, and when we pray for individuals like Fatima, under the threat of the Taliban, who's now in Pakistan, we're praying for her to come to Canada. When we think of Christians being persecuted throughout the world in very, very difficult places, always bear this in mind, whether it applies to you or it applies to people around the world. God is never oblivious to this. And God is never just wringing his hands going, oh, my poor people, I hope the situation changes for them. He's very aware of what's going on in their life. And always remember this, the persecutor of God's people will reap the vengeance of God himself one day. We see that throughout the Bible, and we see that in, his, in this passage. Haman is reaping the vengeance of Almighty God himself. You know, that is a comfort for God's people. Not that we just love pain to happen in the people's lives, but, but we are reminded of the fact that, you know what we're described the Bible? We're described the apple of God's eye. We're precious in his eyes. 
And remember when the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, read about Paul in Acts chapter 9, and Jesus confronts him, this very Paul who persecuted the church. In fact, he tried to drive it out of existence. And do you remember what Jesus said to him when he met Paul on the, on the, road, to, uh, uh, on the road to Damascus? He said, Saul, before he became Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, was Saul persecuting Jesus personally himself? He was really persecuting God's people. But God identifies with his people so deeply that when individuals, dark individuals in this world, persecute Christians and try to annihilate them like Haman, God notices and he identifies with us. That's a tight identification. Let's always remember that. Okay, that's one thing. There are a number of things. We see the victory of the kingdom of God. All these themes that we have considered so far and which we're going to consider in the last two sermons in the next couple of weeks. But I also want to bring something else out here. I want you to think about, because it's not an application immediately comes out of the story, and that is this. I need, I need you to hang with me here for the next few minutes. It's because it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a practical point, but it's also a theological point. And kids, some of you, when you're being catechized, you're learning the basics of the faith, you may, you may uh, have your teacher talk about these things as well. And what I'm about to say, some of you already know, some of you may not. Esther is found in the book of the Old Testament. The Old Testament comprises the first two-thirds of the Bible, right? 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New. When you and I look at the Old Testament, we find two types of individuals in the Old Testament. We find what are called types and anti-types. And a type is an individual, and these types and these anti-types usually find themselves under one of these three official headings, either as prophets, priests, or kings. And types are those who, as prophets, priests, or kings, who in terms of who they are, in terms of their character, and in terms of what they do, in terms of their actions, are actually reflective of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who's to come into the future. They, they what we call foreshadow Jesus, or they point forward to the coming of Jesus in terms of who they are and what they have done. Let me just give you one example of this. King David. You know, um, when you read the life of David in the Bible, if you know anything about David, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind was the certain sins that David committed. For instance, you know, I, I noted in Psalm 51, the Psalm of Confession. Remember, David actually confessed this sin of adultery with this woman of Bathsheba before the Lord in Psalm 51. So we know that, that David was not super clean as an individual, but the main thing was, is he was repentant. And when the Bible talks about David, it speaks about David as a righteous man, generally speaking. It speaks about David as being a man after God's own heart. David was a servant of God. David was not a king who served himself, but was a servant of God's people. David sought to do the will of the Lord. We could talk a lot about David. So David, when you look at the Old Testament, is a type. That is, he points forward to the character and the ways of Jesus Christ. All right, those are types. And I could mention many other types as well. But here's the second thing. They're also what we call in the Old Testament, and we find this here in chapter 7, they're what we call anti-types. And an anti-type, as you maybe know where I'm going with this, an anti-type is a particular person, either a prophet, priest, or king, 
who in terms of who they are, in terms of their character and what they do, are they're actually the direct opposite of the coming of Jesus Christ and actually collectively point us forward for the need to Jesus Christ to come into the world and embrace us as God's people. Now, you take a look at Ahasuerus and Haman. Are they types or are they antitypes? <laughs> they're opposite, right? They're antitypes. They're opposite of Jesus Christ. How are they antitypes? Man, you, you take a look at Ahasuerus. What kind of king is he? He's a proud He's an egotistical king. He can be a very capricious king. That is, you don't know exactly because of how emotionally imbalanced he is, what kind of decision he's going to make at the moment. He can be very unrighteous, unjust king. He's been very a cruel king, you see. So he's the direct opposite of what we know about Jesus Christ. But the same thing, Haman. You know, you look at the passage, you go, oh yeah, Haman is an antitype as well. Because here you have Haman. Haman is not a righteous individual. He's an unrighteous individual. You take a look at Haman, and he makes this plot to exterminate the people of God. Why did Jesus Christ come into this world? He didn't come to exterminate God's people. He didn't come to exterminate us in our sin and our darkness. He came to give his very life for us. You take a look at Haman. He was eventually hung on a gallows that he himself had originally built for Mordecai. You look at Jesus. Jesus was hung as well. But when Haman was hanged, that was a judgment upon him. When Jesus was hanged, yes, it was a judgment upon him for our sin. But it was also through that hanging of Jesus, that crucifixion on the cross, that became the source of deliverance and forgiveness for all those who entrust themselves to Christ. Now, one other thing in regard to that. I suppose, and here it gets a little personal for us, I suppose it would be very easy for us to take a look at Ahasuerus and Haman as antitypes and say to ourselves, well, thank God I'm saved by Jesus and thank God I'm not like them. But is that really true? You know, it's very interesting, Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus exposes the human heart, our hearts. Do you remember what he says? He says, for out of the heart come forth things like these, Slanders, thefts, adulteries, fornications, murders, and other such things. The human heart, our hearts, are pretty, pretty dark. You know what? I will go so far as to say this. Our hearts are just as dark as Ahasuerus and Haman. Right? What does the Bible say? All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who does good. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned aside to our own way. You know, um, fact of the matter is, my friends, we are all antitypes of Jesus. And that's why we need him. That's why we need him. Now, when you look at the book of Esther, Ahasuerus and Haman never came to a point of such humility that they came to the end of themselves. And they never gave us the impression that I need to stop this and I need to plead the mercies of God himself. That's what we call repentance. No indication of repentance. No, no indication of desiring to come clean with God. No, no. 
Do you know what the Bible says? God begs us not to live as antitypes, but to live as repentant and humble. People who are willing to bow the head and bend the knee to this Jesus and ask for forgiveness. And when we do that, there's no one, no matter how bad we are in whatever history we have, where God says, nope, too little, sorry, too late. God has never done that, ever, ever. But for all those who come to him, there is forgiveness in the name of Christ. How did this uh, individual, um, I think I've quoted this before by a man named Jack Miller, he says, you know, and this is very true, and gets to the heart of the gospel, he says, we, we are more sinful, we are more wicked than we could ever dare imagine, but, but also this, we are more loved in Christ than we ever dared hope. Than we ever dared hope. So I want to I end with this. I want to I briefly share with you a story that, that kind of fills the story out for us. And it revolves around a man, and I don't know if this man's name immediately resonates with you or not, but it goes back into World War II history. His name was Joachim von Ribbentrop. And Joachim von Ribbentrop was a foreign secretary to Adolf Hitler in Germany. And it was Van Ribbentrop who experienced with a number of Nazi officials what we call the Nuremberg Trials, which occurred soon after World War II was over, after VE Day in May of 1945. And he was put on trial with a number of individuals. And eventually he was sentenced to be hanged. But before he was sentenced, there was a Lutheran pastor, a very conservative Lutheran pastor, that began to work with Van Ribbentrop. Think of Van Ribbentrop as a Haman type of figure. And he, he talked with him and he shared the gospel with him. And over time, it appeared as if Van Ribbentrop's heart began to be softened to the gospel, to, to the good news of Jesus Christ. It's all recorded in a book called War and Grace by this Lutheran chaplain or this pastor. And it finally came to the point as I draw to the end of this story, came to the point where on October 16, 1946, von Ribbentrop was hanged with a number of individuals. And von Ribbentrop um, came up to a gallows, like the gallows of Haman, and he stood up there, and a noose was placed around his neck. He was the first to be hanged. And an American official said to him, is there anything that you would like to say before you meet your demise? And this is what he allegedly said. He said, I place all my confidence in the Lamb of God who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. And then he turned to the Lutheran chaplain and he said, and I will see you again. And a black hood was placed over his head. The trap door went out. And he hung until he died. Now, you might take a look at someone like Van Ribbentrop, given the fact that he's very intimately tied with the final solution. You know what I'm talking about? That was the, the German plan to annihilate the Jewish people, just like Haman. And we can look at Van Ribbentrop and say, yeah, 
totally anti-type, wicked and perverse and all of that. We can take a look at him in connection with both Ahasuerus and Haman. But don't these individuals ultimately give us hope, especially if in Ribbentrop? Because if it is true that his heart was softened to the point where he confessed, as he says, Jesus as the Lamb of God who made atonement for his sins. You think about if God can forgive someone like Ribbentrop, he can forgive any one of us as long as we come to the end of ourselves and plead the mercies of Jesus Christ. And when we do, God never turns away. You know what you call that? It's called the gospel. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds all the more. And it goes for every one of us and anyone who turns to Christ. And that is so beautiful. Again, it's called the gospel. We're able to celebrate that gospel here this morning. So with that even being said, would you join me? And let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we thank you for the opportunity for us in just a moment to be able to sing about that very grace. And so, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were hung on the gallows of the cross, as it were, so that we might be delivered of our sin and so that we might be ushered in to your presence, cleansed, washed, forgiven. Thank you so much. Oh God, may our response be one, not only of singing out and praising your name, but maybe a life of beautiful faith and consistent obedience. May that be our gift back to you, O Lord, for all that you have done for us. Grant that to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.